This is Mona Tanja, president of NCSM, and welcome to Learning with Leaders, the Bold Mathematics Leadership Series. Join me as I sit down and have conversations with emerging and established leaders exploring equity in action. You will hear from bold mathematics leaders as they share their experiences and actions and what they have learned from them. We think these next few minutes will help you consider the bold actions that you can take to focus on equity and support those that you serve. Grab a warm cup of coffee and a journal as we learn together on our mathematics leadership journey. Hello, I'm Mona Tonchev. Welcome to the NCSM podcast, Learning with Leaders. John Sanjeevani and I are the co-hosts for the Bold Mathematics Leadership Series. To finish up the Bold Leadership Series, we have invited speakers to sit down with us and discuss what equity means to them and share with us their experiences and stories of leadership actions that support our journey as mathematics leaders. We have with us today, Dr. Timothy Kainold. Dr. Kainold is an educator, husband, father, runner, author, and inspirational speaker. He is a nationally recognized K-12 mathematics educator and leader from Illinois, where he was also served, he also served as school district superintendent. Dr. Kainold is also a past president of NCSM, and he has co-authored mathematics textbooks for Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and several other books, including the 2018 IPPY Award winning book, and IPPY stands for Independent Publisher Book Award. The book was titled Heart, Fully Forming Your Professional Teaching and Leading Life. His follow-up book that was released this February is titled Soul, Fulfilling the Promise of Your Professional Life as a Teacher and Leader, a professional wellness wellness and self-reflection resource for educators at every grade level. Dr. Kainold is also the recipient of the 2010 Damon Award for Outstanding Leadership Contributions to the Field of Education, and he is the 2017 Ross Taylor Glenn Gilbert National Mathematics Leadership Award recipient. And most importantly, he is a fantastic mentor and friend, and we are honored that he can join us today. So welcome, Tim. Thanks so much, Mona and John, and uh, it's really my privilege to, to be in this podcast with you today. I'm excited. Well, thanks for joining us. So we've been asking all of our uh, invitees the question at the very beginning around what does equity mean to you? Yeah, you know, um, obviously that's a, a really broad-based question, but I was I was reflecting on on that. I think somewhere maybe on my my. Twitter profile or something, I say something about I'm an equity eraser. And I, I can't really tell you why, but I know very early on, um, you know, I grew up in Chicago and, um, and I even grew up in an era where, uh, depending on what high school you were in or at, like if we were visiting for track and field, um, the black athletes had to sit separate from the white athletes. There were black hallways and white hallways. I mean, that's an era I grew up in. And there was something, um, even in my first teaching job, when I went to a rural school and then ended up being in a, a very urban uh, school, my second job, and eventually a suburban job, in all of those settings, rural, urban, and suburban, I encountered almost um, what I would call invisible inequities and, and no one addressing them. And it just seems strange to me that in our profession, especially math education, you know, that 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 there wasn't this intentionality about pursuing where do the inequities exist in our school curriculum? Where do they exist in how we provide students access and opportunity? Um, you know, and, and even where do they exist because teachers make their own individual decisions and those decisions destroy student learning for the next, for the next grade level or the next year. And because we're saddled with being a vertically connected curriculum, we can't afford for that. I think it's why I've spent my entire life really 
passionately pursuing the PLC process, as we understand it, PLC at work, as it was developed in my district, because I, I wanted to make the grain size of change and decision-making change the teacher team so that we could be pretty guaranteed that students would come to the next grade level equitably prepared. Even answering the simple question, what do we want every child to know and be able to do and meaning it. You know, the guaranteed and viable curriculum means it's guaranteed and viable for every child in third grade, not just every child who might get, you know, one of us as their teacher. And, and so I think that that idea of beginning to erase inequities by, by eliminating the noise of the, of the independent nature of our work and working together to around best practice, you know, I think really began my equity journey. You know, and then I, I think it matured as I got older in terms of realizing you know, that not only do you have to, to go after those inequities, but even understanding how students learn and, um, and, and sort of this, you know, do we really get to teach mathematics any way we want to? Well, no, actually we don't, you know, we don't have the, we have a, what I would call a moral responsibility to actually teach and, and, and make moves in the classroom that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt have a significant impact on student learning. And so if we know those things, I, I would consider it malpractice not to do them. So the role of the math education leader is to say, we're not going to allow all this inequity in the rigor of our curriculum and the rigor of the tasks that we ask kids to do and the rigor of the assessments we give, or even the, as simple as the practice that we give students to do, because we're going to work together to do that around what we know is the best practice, not only in the nature of what we have students experience, but also the process in which they learn it. So, so you know, I think, um, that's part of equity for me is, is, is bringing that kind of common ground and expectations. People have asked me, um, Tim, have you ever required teachers to do anything, math teachers do anything as a math ed leader? And my answer is not really, but I've expected them to. I've expected them my entire life to actually behave in ways that advance student learning. And if they don't have evidence of that, then, then it's my responsibility. Hopefully you do it with a with grace, but it's my responsibility to call attention to the inequity that they're creating, even if it's unintentional um, and in terms of how students learn. So that's part of it, certainly, you know, and then there's also the social justice end of it, some of which we control and some of which we don't, you know, um, but I do think that when we take seriously how do we help every child learn, then what we have to do is learn about the whole child and where they're coming from, what their backgrounds are, how they understand or see things, how they even see words. You know, my colleague, Luis Cruz, has actually begun to say that, you know, ESL students should really be looked on as gifted and not as students, you know, that are, that are um, in need of additional support in the sense of we're going to track them into their own classes and so on, because they can actually speak two languages. They're learning to speak two languages. So, you know, isn't that the very definition of someone who could who is considered advanced? So, so I think it's looking at, at the way we do things and challenging ourselves to think about, do we really provide access to all students? So I know that's a long answer to that question, but I really feel that, you know, as math education leaders, we have a responsibility to root out any inequities we see taking place um, in terms of either how we're creating a classroom of validation all the way to our kids even getting access to the best mathematics curriculum we offer. And that just that's such great insight and, and perspective. It gets me excited to, to learn more from you. Um, and thinking of excitement, uh, NCSM is excited to have you as a, a major speaker for NCSM's 53rd Annual Conference in Atlanta. 
Um, thinking about the conference, what is something about the conference that you look forward to? Yeah, John, you know, um, I was thinking about, uh, I'm so glad you, you're asking this question because I want to, I just want to tell everybody. So my first NCSM conference was 1983 and it was in Detroit, Michigan. And I was a math teacher, a high school math teacher. And my department chair, a guy named Lee Yunker, who was actually on the NCSM board at the time, um, said, Tim, you're coming to the meeting with me. We're driving to Detroit. And I'm like, okay, I don't even know what NCSM is. I'm not a math leader. You know, I'm just in the classroom. I'm a coach. I'm just trying to survive life, making no money. Almost. I mean, it was so, it was just a really difficult time uh, in my life that way. And, and, I, and I'll never forget five of us pile into his car and we drive to Detroit. And, and here, this is, this is the best part of what I love about the meetings, because I think even as a past president of NCSM, I was very aware of the power of the connections that occur because people come to the meetings, the power of, of being with people who understand. I, I remember it's like, oh my gosh, they have the same problems I have. They're dealing with the same stuff I'm dealing with. Someone actually understands, you know, like uh, the frustrations I have and the joy too, you know? But so we get to this first meeting and I'm kind of feeling like I really don't belong. And guess who's president of NCSM in 1983? It was Shirley Fry. And sure, and and so Lee, Lee was kind of a, a Montana guy. He was kind of, he, I don't know, he was in, uh, the, well, we're in an urban area of Chicago, and yet here he was, kind of this Western cowboy dude, big guy. And he take and he says, we're going to this country Western bar. And so we go to the bar, and we're all just sitting there, and uh, you know, having a beer, or whatever. And this woman comes up to me and says, "Would you like to dance?" And so I get into a line dance with her, and she, you know, she seems really nice and. Um, a little, little bit older than me, quite a bit, actually, at the time. I'm, I'm like 31 or 32 at the time. So she seemed really older to me. And, um, and when the dance gets done, she's like, you know, so tell me who you are. You're here with Lee Yunker, right? And I said, yeah. And I, my name's Tim Canold. And she said, well, I'm Shirley Fry. It's so nice to meet you. And that was it. That was the whole conversation. We, I get home. Two weeks later, I get a card in the mail from Shirley Fry president of NCSM, this kind of in my head, this god of math education, right? Um, then this was before she even became president of NCTM. And it was a card just saying, it was so nice to meet you at the NCSM meeting. You know, I really feel, um, you know, I, I just wish you the best in your math journey. And, you know, um, I was stunned by that, one, she even remembered my name, and two, she took the time to send me a personal handwritten card and somehow had to get my home address, probably got it from Lee or something. You know, and this was before email, you know, like, so this was not like, uh, and, and it taught me a lesson, because I remember hearing that from Shirley, that getting that card and saying, I must do the same. If I ever have a chance someday to be a math education leader, I'm going to pay that forward. I'm going to make sure that I'm noticing people who are coming up in the next generation and, 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 and urging them along, you know, as appropriate. And so, you know, I think those, that's what NCSM that's what the annual conference does for us. And I just, so one, it's the connections, but two, you know, I think really the opportunity to learn um, because uh, it's, it's, I can't think, I don't think of a time I've ever been at NCSM conference personally, and I've been at all of them since 83, that, you know, there hasn't uh, been significant people ahead of me that I've been able to learn from. And so, you know, I think that's all, that's what I love about it. Yeah.
Oh, Tim, that is such a great answer. I, I, I love it. And you read my mind thinking about seeing old friends, making new friends, um, learning together and, and having some fun together. Um, that is just a great perspective. Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I can attest to his uh, sort of paying it forward. Because so that was at what, 19? You said 1983? Yeah. In 2004, I sat across a table in Phoenix Union High School District and you told my boss <laughs> she has to go to NCSM. So I my did. first conference was in 2004 as a brand new math leader. So you definitely <clears throat> honored Shirley Fry and you paid it forward there. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's pretty funny that I actually went to your boss, Jean, and told her. Yep, yep. <laughs> we yep. have to send her. By myself, across country, had never traveled like that, but it changed my life. So thank that's you. Cool. <laughs> so, um, we're headed to Atlanta. So your yeah. session is titled Attending to the Heart and Soul of Your Leadership Life. Mm -hmm. So give us a sneak peek into your session and possibly what are some of the takeaways that participant might have? Yeah, you know, I think I've learned so much since I wrote Heart. And uh, when I wanted to write up a, a follow-up book, I think the iconic phrase heart and soul and, and as math ed leaders, you know, how what is the importance of leading with our heart and soul even, you know, obviously it takes a certain amount of academic and intellectual knowledge about our field to be able to lead people forward. But ultimately, um, I think as a leader, people really remember you for how you helped build into them and, you know, build, move them forward. So, so in this session, uh, you know, it, it's all new. It's brand new. It's a, I've never given this. In fact, this will be the first time I'll deliver it. We'll be at NCSM in Atlanta. And it's really built on sort of some new um, brain research and neuroscience research that I walked through as I was um, over the last two and a half years writing Soul, writing the follow-up book. So one of the things I discovered is the critical impact on, believe it or not, mirror neurons and how students tend to mirror the teacher's emotional mood, the place that they're in emotionally that day. And, and if we're in an emotionally good place, um, you know, more pleasant emotions, you might think of it that way, then students are more likely to engage in the work that you're asking them to do mathematically. However, if we're engaged in, in perhaps difficult responses to anger or, or fear or um, various kinds of anxiety or even being scared, all those things, um, even sadness, if we're anchored in that in front of our students and, and we're not having a positive emotional response in front of them, actually it shuts down their cognition. So, so there's quite a bit of brain of research evidence of this. It's, it's, it's things that I learned about doing that. And so one of the things we're going to do in this session is we're going to look at some great strategies for, I don't want to give, give them away, but we're going to look at some great strategies because uh, I want them to come to this session. Right. But we're, we're going to look at some really great strategies for, I think, um, bringing your best emotional self to school every day, no matter what else is going on and the obstacles going on in your life in the background, either your professional or personal life. And let's face it, we have just had a year of emotional exhaustion. And I think a lot of us are in a place of emotional exhaustion. And I think one of the things that this session will do is one, lift you out of that place a little bit, but two, give you some really concrete strategies for not going to that place, for you know, recognizing when it's happening and then doing something about it 
and here are some some great routines you can try and 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 I you know I th I think it'll it'll provide that and and in the beginning I've always felt that you know oh you know it's really not a session directly tied to mathematics that way but because our organizations for mathematics education leaders we have a responsibility to steward a culture like that in in the, in our area of influence and so you know my hope is that one of the primary takeaways is is, is is this will not only help you, but it'll also help um, you know those that you're leading, so that you, when you can recognize and maybe create a culture structures that will help them um, respond in a way that's healthy for their students and for them. Yeah, that's that's the bottom line. Yeah, that's uh, I look forward to it. And clearly, you're not going to give away any spoilers. Um, so not too many. I, I might give away one before we're done. All right, we're, we're going to try and get one out of you along the way, Tim. Um, <laughs> you know, thinking about your session, your session description asks this question, is math teaching and leading your vocation or merely your career? And we suspect many might have a sense of what you're speaking to. But but tell us, what do you mean? Hopefully, it's not a spoiler. Um, and how do you see math leadership as something more than than a career? Yeah, so I'm, I'll tease it, and um, and I have a really good story for it. But but I'm using that story in the talk. So okay. I, I, and, and, it's Steve, and by the way, Steve Linewan's involved in the story. So <laughs> oh, that's anybody that knows Steve Linewan, they'll <laughs> they'll they should come for that reason alone. But but seriously, um, so there's this concept of your first mountain climb and your second mountain climb in your professional life. And I think that a lot of us that end up going into the math education leadership realm. Um, in the beginning, we may do it because we see it as a first mountain climb. In other words, first mountain climb is what's the profession doing for me? And so it's kind of self-centered. It's sort of, it, it doesn't mean it's bad, but it's like, well, what awards am I winning? Or, or am I getting any recognition? Or am I serving as president of an organization? Or do I get to be on this team? Or do I? And so it's, it's very much like a feeling it, it's about achievement and that's fine. There, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not fulfilling. It will never last. In fact, every single achievement you get will still leave you empty. And then there's this, this idea or this thought about a second mountain climb. And in the second mountain climb, instead of, instead of standing in front of a mirror and saying, what is my math leadership life all about? And saying, well, it's all about advancing me, 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 me it becomes, and what's the profession doing for me? It becomes, what is the profession asking from me? And, and so I can even remember with great, with great clarity when I made the decision to, for example, to, be, to run, to be considered as NCSM president, I really, um, at the time, probably didn't really have the time to do it. But I felt this clear kind of leaning that the profession was asking me to run. And if it worked, it, fine. And if it didn't work, fine. I mean, I, I would live with the pathway no matter what it was. But, but sometimes I think when we decide if this, is it our vocation, it's like we make this decision that I have no choice but to do these things with my life. I am a math educator and I am a math education leader. And this is just how I'm wired up. And even when it gets tough, it doesn't matter because this is who I am. I, and, and I have no choice but to take on this role, these, these roles in our schools, in our districts or in an organization or whatever. So, you know, to me, um, that's the difference between a career and a vocation. A career is about health benefits and, and achievements and awards and, and money and all that. And those might be important. But, but vocation is about, this is your calling uh, in, in so many words. Yeah, so I love the idea of the vocation versus the career, because I understand the calling piece and what it means to 
serve others. You don't go into it for the notoriety. You go into it for the passion, right? right. You go into it because it's something that you just strongly believe in and that you want to be, it's so, so strong in your beliefs that you just want to be, be a part of it. You know, Mona, I think it's like there's a second tier of um, otherness. So we are in a profession of others. We, as math teachers, we are here to serve the K-12 growth of our students. Mm -hmm. But when you decide to wear the math ed leadership mantle, you have to be in it for others because you've decided I'm going to lead other adults. I'm going to do the best I can to understand how different adults learn and they don't all learn the same way. And now I'm in this kind of second tier of influence because they're also leading their students. So, so you, you don't feel it perhaps quite as strongly, but I do believe that if we fail to see it as an, as, as a, an otherness profession, like it, it's, you know, then we're failing to find the full fulfillment of, of what our, our vocation is Latin for voice. So, so of what our voice is, you know, I think that, and people, and that has to be sincere. You know, I, I don't think you can be inauthentic with that. Um, but everybody who I, when I talk about this topic, I think those for which this is their voice, they totally, you know, connect in, which is great to see. So in, in your book, Soul Story, um, you speak about creating moments of vulner vulnerability, but often we as leaders think of those as just moments that just happen or occur. So tell us more about this vulnerability loop and how you can create them and view vulnerability as a strength. Yeah, so, so I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler alert too. So in my session, I'm gonna talk about which comes first, vulnerability or trust. And, 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 you know, like, so do I have to trust you in order to be vulnerable with you? Or do I become vulnerable with you first? And then trust develops. And the, the neuroscience on this is crystal clear. So I'm going to give the answer here. So people know ahead of time, but the answer is really clear. Vulnerability precedes trust. And that surprises a lot of people. It even surprised me a little bit. And, and I, and yet the more I thought about it, the more um, I realized that, that the power of vulnerability is not in the person who ask for help, but it's in the receiver and what they do next. And so this will be something for us as leaders to really think about. But basically, our profession, you know, I don't get it quite because, you know, if you're a doctor, if you go to see your doctor and I don't know, your, your arms dangling around or something, it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what that is, but I got an arm specialist I can send you to, right? They immediately admit right up front, they're not an expert in that and here, but I know one that is, and I'll send you to that. And in, in our profession, we don't tend to do that. It's like somehow we're just supposed to have all the answers all the time to everything, really? Like who put that mantle on us? And so to me, <laughs> You know, what I'm hoping is what, what, what I think this is all about is, first of all, can we lead a culture in which vulnerability is a strength? So, I, I, you know, I think our first, our first job in this issue is to say, I'm going to lead a culture where vulnerability becomes a strength and no longer viewed as a, as a weakness. Vulnerability will be a strength. We are going to be vulnerable with one another, which simply means we're going to ask each other for help. It's that simple. I'm not sure about how to use this technology. Can you please help me? I know you've already showed me four times, but I'm still not sure. Can you please help me? 
And what's really important is that when you ask for help or when, and what the leader has to watch for is how does the recipient that was being asked for help respond? Because if I'm in a team meeting and I say, hey, could you really help me with that? I'm not quite sure how this fits in, you know, into the story arc for, for our unit four on fractions. Could you give me some help with that? Admitting, even though I'm a 12 year veteran, I'm still not sure about it, right, or whatever. And, and your answer is, Tim, how can you not know that? We've been teaching this every year for three years. You're such an idiot, right? Well, I will never be vulnerable with you again. So, so as leaders, we can't be tolerant of that. We have to be, we have to teach the recipient has all the power. And, and if you think about even your own personal life, when you're vulnerable with someone you're really close to, your spouse, your partner, your close for your a really close friend, you are giving them the power to hurt you. And, and it's no different than at work. If when I'm vulnerable and, and, and I, and because I don't want to give people the power to hurt me because of how they might respond, we have to create a culture where responses are so appropriate and grace-filled that we go like, yeah. And, and what, what I understand from the research is that the best response the recipient can give when, when I say, hey, could you help me with this is first of all, to acknowledge, wow, Tim's asking me for help. And, and when the leader asks for help, that begins to model it. Because they, I think, math, when we're the leaders of our departments or our, our, our curriculum in our school districts, or we're the leaders in the instructional coach or whatever, people tend to look at us as like, oh, they sort of have all the answers. They got it all figured out. But when we ask for help, it's, we begin to model that vulnerability loop. But then the key is for me, for whoever's listening to say, oh, okay, that per, they're asking for help. So then something they respond with something like, you know, I've had that same problem before. Let me let me show you what I do. And it's just that simple. It, it's no more or let or you know what, here's what I do. But you know, I, I know Joe or she, he's got a better answer. You know, maybe maybe we should both go talk to Joe. You're right. So so it's that kind of thing. Um, vulnerability loops are basically these loops of asking for help responding appropriately through the giving of help. And then, um, um, and that creates this establishment of trust. And over time, we become more vulnerable with one another because we know we're not, you know, I, I, I've told you guys about, I have this thing where um, I'll put my hands above my head at a team meeting and I'll ask for the umbrella of mercy. And I'll just be like, I know you guys are gonna wanna jump all over this, but let me just say what I wanna say. And then when I'm done, I'll ask you and invite you for your help and your feedback. And I think that's a very powerful way for us as leaders to communicate. And, um, and also it, it tells people, slow down a little bit, just hear out the whole idea before you just tell me all the things that are wrong with it. So it's, it, that's all it is. I mean, it's that simple, but, it, but it's complex in terms of its deliverables. I was going to say, it, it sounds simple, but it's not easy to do, <laughs> right? It does sound simple. It does sound simple, but yeah. I, I just wanted to echo some of your comments about the vulnerability piece because the framework for leadership in math education that came out in April of 2020, one of the guiding principles is the empower principle, which what you're describing is if you can engage in that those vulnerability loops and build a deeper level of trust, you're empowering those that you serve. And that's what you're Correct. driving for building that collective efficacy, which we know is important to do on any any education team. So thank you for adding that part to the story. Yeah. Thanks. So um, I have one last question for you, Tim, that is personally, it's just a selfish question, but I think all of our leaders want to hear about it as well. And that is, um, you know, as we look forward to a new school year 
starting next fall and one that mm -hmm. is probably unlike any other. Um, what's, what's one piece of advice that you might give um, a math leader as they prepare for the next school year? Yeah, and you know, John, it's funny because I'm asking that same question of a lot of people this summer at our different events and so on. You know, um, you know, I think for me, uh, this this might sound a little trite, just because uh, I'm thinking about how I would, you know, for for myself personally. But I think one of the things that I'm very aware of is that whole analogy about, you know, when the airplane is going down, um, put the mask on yourself first before you put it on your child. And, and I would say my best advice for math ed leaders as they walk into August is to, um, is to make sure they're taking care of themselves, you know, that they're taking some time for themselves to, to, so that they are in a really healthy place every single day at work. They're, they're able to um, stay balanced, um, I think, emotionally and, and truly be there because you can't be there for others if you're all wrapped up in your own your own um, stuff. So you you have to be, I, I think, making sure they're doing things outside of the school day, whether it's their, whether it's a amount of sleep or rest or um, the foods they're eating or the nature of their movement, just getting some kind of movement into so so any kind of physical habits, but but also um, even their the their decision making, their you know, balancing out their 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 life with with some off time so that they can be fully available for everybody when they're at work. I think those are things that are important. But um, also, I would say to me, the most urgent thing is how are you leading people through um, the, the curriculum um, and, and this kind of year of where I'm just hoping we don't try to cram everything in. I think the best thing we can do to help teachers this year is with their unit plans and giving them permission to take certain stuff out, pass that information along to the next grade level or next course, and, 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 and just feel like you don't have to make up everything that happened last year, year and a half in one year, you know, and, and yet having a really clear plan that they discuss with the folks they're leading so, so that, that we can see the big picture. So being able to paint the big picture to me would be really important, uh, more so than anything else, um, you know, for this coming year and, and planning this summer to get it done, you know, like uh, really thinking through how they're going to deliver that message and who do they need to work with and, who, you know, et cetera, uh, to get ready for that. The only other thing I'd say, if there's any chance to get any of your units um, revised and, and developed um, for at least the first six weeks of next year and get it done this summer, I would do it, you know, if, if you know, if they can. But um, I think that's going to be if, if you don't answer critical question one that we call it, what do you want every child to know and be able to do, then everything else goes out the window. So that question has to be, has to be really crystal clear. We have a saying that um, clarity precedes competence. So we can't expect students to be competent in the math curriculum for that grade level or course if we aren't crystal clear on exactly what the standards are we want students to learn. So I, I just feel like that needs to be um, really honed in on for next year. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Tim. That, that's perfect. It's really good <laughs> advice. So just a little sneak peek to the podcast listeners. NCSM is co-authoring a paper with NCTM as well as ASSM this summer. Um, it's called right now, Continuing to Move Forward, but that might change. Um, and it's a follow-up to our document from last summer, the Moving Forward document. Um, and in there, Tim, there are specific actions around how to appropriately scaffold and support um, because you, if we're not doing that, if we're not attending to the fact that students did learn 
this last year. It's our job to figure out what their strengths are when they come into the classroom and how to move them forward. We are doing ourselves a disservice as well as our students. So uh, you will get to read that as long as with everybody else in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I think one of the things that I've always felt is that even in my own leadership was that, you know, um, I would have a tendency to come into the school year and I'd be focusing on three or four different major initiatives. And James McGregor Burns says to have more than one initiative is to have too many. And so um, Rick DeFore, my boss, sort of taught me how to just really have one major initiative that you're drilling deep on, you know, that you think has the highest benefit in terms of student learning in that year. Doesn't mean there aren't some other things going on around you, but, you know, really, really saying, okay, this is what I'm going to, I'm just going to be passionately pursuing this year in order to make sure we're getting our students back on track as best we can. Um, and, and that includes answering the question, I think, uh, for people who aren't quite sure about, you know, so what happens if we do still have, you know, that question, that very singular question of the guaranteed and viable curriculum for this year in every grade level and course, it, it, it simply, it does include all the other stuff, like, well, what technology would be used or wouldn't be, you know, like it's, it's all of that too, but, but it's really going to be your singular focus that every team's going to have to answer and respond to every single one. And if I was a principal, this would be happening across the board in every subject area. I wouldn't even hesitate, you know, like this, every department, every grade level, every um, team that I have in the building, would have to be showing me how they're responding to the to their revised unit planning work. And in our discipline, man, it's it's so important. Yeah. Um, you know, as we've already talked about. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tim. I appreciate you being a guest on the podcast. And just yes. it was just an honor to talk to you. And of course, you know, you are my friend. So <laughs> <laughs> so she's, she's a little biased, but let me say uh, that it was a pleasure to spend time with you, Tim, and I'm sure our listeners will agree. You're awesome, John. I, thanks, Mona. You know, you guys, I just can't wait. I'm like you, I'm sure, because you're, you guys are going through it more at the organizational leadership level, but I am just, I cannot wait for, to actually be back in Atlanta with, and see all so many of our friends and just be back together again with our with our group, it's just been too long and and pretty messy, but I think we're getting on the other side of it. So, yeah, Absolutely. we agree. We yep. agree. Concur. We agree. Concur. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. You guys have a great summer. We hope you have been inspired by this bold mathematics leadership conversation, and will tune into our podcast series each month. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. You can learn more about NCSM Leadership in Mathematics Education and our upcoming professional learning events on the NCSM website at mathedleadership.org. You can also follow NCSM on Twitter at mathedleaders using the hashtag NCSMBold. Thanks again.